Good evening. Well, it turns out the pre-tribulation futurists were right, the rapture happened. And we are now in the tribulation, apparently. Actually, that, when I watched the news today, I was pretty convinced we were in the, in the great tribulation. Uh, speaking of that, uh, Matt and I were just talking, and he suggested, I think it's a great suggestion, just to let you know how we do this at the church. We've been watching the weather all day, and obviously we didn't cancel church because there's not any, any much threat of severe weather here. But just so you know, the tornado sirens go off around here. I'm sure you know this. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's a tornado anywhere around. But we have people watching whenever we have people in the building, and so we will hear a, an, an alarm in here if there is a tornado nearby, and we have great shelters in this building. So I just wanted to reassure you a little bit that people are watching the weather while we have people in the building, and we have an internal system where we'll get notified if that's the case. And I just got a text saying that the uh, sirens are going off out there, but that there's no severe weather in our area. Is that helpful? And that's true, by the way, anytime we have a lot of people in the building, whether it's a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Monday or Thursday or all the programming that we have, we have people that are watching the weather and we have pretty good security procedures. So I thought I'd just tell you that. Okay? Well, let me uh, open with a prayer, particularly for those who are in, in the path of uh, severe weather tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study together. I do pray with severe weather in our area. It's uh, all too common, unfortunately, but we do pray that you would watch over those in its path, pray that you would spare them, that there'd be no damage or harm, and that they would also have adequate warning and find shelter. Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, bless them, watch over them. We thank you for all the blessings that we have, particularly this opportunity tonight to be together, to worship you, to learn about you, and Lord, to learn how to uh, walk out your word in our life. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, you know the question number. Text your questions during class to that number. Let me start. Uh, I won't go through this every time, and I'll make it really quick this time because you probably kind of got this memorized already, right? But we're kind of looking at Revelation through four views, three more than the other, the, the fourth. But if you remember, we are in the tribulation. We're going to be in chapters 8 through 10 in this lesson. But since chapter 4, we moved into a series of vision that describe a period of judgments, basically, on the earth. We talked about the fact that the structure of this section is three sets of seven judgments. There are seven seals that are open. You are going to experience seven trumpets in this lesson, and then later there'll be seven bowls of wrath, and a lot of things happening in between, but seven is that number of completeness, the complete judgment, and three is either an emphasis, you know, you repeat something three times in Hebrew and it, it means you're emphasizing it. Three also happens to be, another uh, meaning of that symbol is a divine number, the number of divinity. So it's either you understand that either is God's divine judgment, which is true, or this is the complete judgment of God leading to the end of all time and all things, which is, is also a very good way to understand what's happening. In our last lesson, we basically came through the the seals and opening the seals you began to see as Jesus opens the seals God's judgment begins to happen on the earth if you look at these visions and say they happened early in history near the writing of the book a preterist is going to understand all these events is happening in the first century most most of the time the fall of Jerusalem between 66 and 70 AD and I won't talk about that as much because it's not as, as prevalent a view at the moment, the historicists 
basically said, actually, all these visions are a roadmap throughout history, the whole church age from uh, the resurrection of Christ till the second coming of Christ, and it's very linear, chronological. The six seals that we've opened so far took us all the way up to events that happened in the Roman Empire until about 313 A.D. We'll pick up in this lesson from 313 A.D., and they believe that these trumpets are going to describe what happened in history up to about 1453 A.D., and I'll tell you why that in just a little bit. Futurist says, well, actually, these visions are all yet to come. This period is about a seven-year period in the future, and none of these things have happened yet. And so with the seals, you begin to see forecasted events that will happen during that tribulation. And what we're going to look at in this lesson, a futurist would say, are more forecasted events. Symbolic or idealist view would say these visions are really three telling of the same story. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, that's telling the same story three times. And so in our last lesson, the symbolic view understood that as sort of a symbolic picture of the entire judgment. The rebellion of people against God, God's judgment on them, the second coming, kind of saw a symbolic picture of that happening. And you'll see that the same thing is going to happen in this lesson. In other words, the symbolic view sees this as a multiple telling of different ways of the same story. So those are the different views. Let's jump into chapter 8 because uh, what's going to happen in chapter 8 is the seventh seal is going to be open. And you're going to see the same pattern, by the way. We opened the first four seals, remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse, then the fifth and sixth seal, and then there was a pause, and that's where we left off in our lesson. The trumpets are going to be exactly the same way. There's huge parallelism, in other words, just pattern that runs through these visions. Well, as we open the seventh seal, it says something really interesting. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, if you remember back to chapter 4 and 5, when John begins to see the vision of heaven, you see this huge heavenly worship of angels and these four living creatures and the elders and loud and people singing. And all of a sudden, though, when you open the seventh seal, dead silence. And so the significance of this is the sense of impending, something big is about to happen. You know, it's like the silence before the storm, so to speak. And so you get this awe, this foreboding, something big is going to happen. Well, right after that, verse 2, he says, Then in the silence I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, these guys are really interesting because they're apparently seven special angels because it said they stand before God or stand in the presence of God. And they're given seven trumpets to blow, which will unleash God's judgment again on the earth. These seven angels show up in other places, and I thought I'd just talk to you a little bit about them. Most people think these are the archangels, the ruling angels. Think, of, think about it like they're generals in the angel army, if you want to think about it that way. And they kind of show up in other places. I'm going to show you a couple of passages here. This first is from the book of Tobit. The book of Tobit is part of the Apocrypha, meaning if you are Jewish, I know there's probably not that many of you that are Jewish here, but there are, if you're Jewish, that book is not in your Bible. If you're a Protestant Christian, that book is not in your Bible. If you're a Catholic, that book is in your Bible. And uh, that's an interesting story, probably for another time, but fundamentally it's, it's not considered to be an inspired book. It's, con it's one of those books that was written 
after the end of the Old Testament, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's several of those books, and they're called the Apocrypha. Anyway, there's a story in that uh, about this guy named Tobit, and one, there's an angel that appears in this story, and his name is Raphael, but notice what it said about him. He says to one of the characters in the story, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. Then in the New Testament, you see the angel Gabriel coming, and this is, this is the incident where Gabriel comes to speak to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you some good news. But it's interesting that that little phrase of standing in the presence of God, and then here we are in Revelation 8 too, we see seven angels who stand in the presence of God. And so this kind of the thinking is, is these are these archangels. Well, there's some Jewish myth, if, if you want to think about it that way. There's a book called, uh, there are actually a lot of these, called First Enoch. This is also written in the time period before Jesus lived. And it has all kinds of stories, not inspired by God, but these are sort of myths about angels. And according to uh, First Enoch, the tradition or the myth is that these seven archangels had specific functions, and here are their names that are listed. Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Mishael, which we pronounce Michael, Mishael, Sariel, Remiel, and Gabriel. And so these archangels are pictured in folklore, but in the book of Revelation, you see these seven angels before God are given trumpets, and a lot of people think these are the archangels. These are kind of the ruling angels. So you're going to see the angels carrying out God's will, and we're going to see that actually through the book of Revelation, is these angels are dispatched to do God's will, and you're going to see them in time coming into conflict with angels that don't do God's will. But in this case, they're going to announce judgment on the earth. Before they begin to blow the trumpets, though, there's one other interesting thing, because you've seen the prayers of the saints before, by the way, featured as incense. You've seen the, the prayers of the saints being offered up to God as though they were, and this is a symbol, but as though it were sweet-smelling incense, the prayers of God's people. He says, well, when I saw those angels get the trumpet, there was another angel, had a golden censer, and he came and stood at the altar. He was given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints, Saints are the holy ones, the God's people, Christians. You are saints. In the New Testament, it refers to those who are believers in Christ as holy ones, or we translate that word saints. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers went up before God, and then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and he hurled these down on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. By the way, how many adjectives in there? I just want you to kind of watch for that. Four is the number of creation and created things, so what gets thrown down onto creation? Peals of thunder, rumblings, lightning, earthquake. And so you, you see these things being judged. In other words, creation is being judged. And it's also an answering of the prayers of the saints. Because think about what's happening here. Christians throughout the ages have been reading this book and realizing we're undergoing persecution. Where are you, God? Back in chapter 6, the saints said, how long will we undergo this persecution? And God said, a little longer. And here you see God taking their prayers and saying, this is justice, judgment for what has happened to my people throughout time. Well, let's talk about 
the trumpets as they begin to blow. And I'm going to give you a little summary of the trumpets. The first four happen really quickly, and then there's a pause. These first four trumpets, are as the trumpets begin, things happen on the earth, and they happen to the earth. And if you are preterist, you're going to understand these trumpets as describing the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., something that happened in the past. If you are a historicist, if you understand these visions as mapping out church history, you're going to understand it as the fall of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire becomes kind of Christian Empire in 313, and it's going to totally fall. I'll show you, and I'll show you a map and the time frame, in 1453 A.D. And the thought, if you're a historicist, is this correlates to specific events in the fall of the Roman Empire over that time period. If you're a futurist, you're going to understand this as specific events happening in a very short period of time, in this seven-year window of tribulation. And then again, if it's a symbolic or an idealistic view, you're going to understand this as kind of an exodus pattern, if you will. If you know the story of the uh, exodus, you'll realize that what happened there is God judging uh, Egypt and bringing his people to safety out of slavery. What you see with the church in this time of tribulation is Satan trying to oppress the church, the culture trying to oppress the church. And you're going to see in these, in these trumpets the exact same things are happening that happened in that plagues in the Exodus. And so it's a retelling of that Exodus story of God being faithful to come get his people and take them to safety, in this case the safety of eternity, and judge the gods of the world. So that's what symbolic thinks is happening. So the different views, really depending on when you think that's happening. Well, let's look at the first uh, couple of trumpets. When the first angel sounded his trumpet, there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass were burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all on fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea was turned to blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed so these trumpets these first two trumpets are portrayed as bringing fire and destruction onto the earth that first trumpet it's it's really interesting because john's writing this probably about 95 a.d and you probably are familiar with this, but in 79 AD, not that long before, Mount Vesuvius erupted and literally covered the town of Pompeii. There's been a lot of excavation there, and you may have seen some, some shows on television of the excavated remains of, they cut through the lava, and here's people literally, you know, just what's left, they were just caught like that in the eruption. And the, sea, and the ships in the uh, harbor were destroyed. And, of course, the volcanic ash. It was a cataclysmic event. And you begin to, to kind of resonate with that when you read this. And so the preterists understand this as a symbol. Not that the world started on fire, but the Roman army brought this judgment on Jerusalem. Historicists are going to understand this as the invasions of the Roman Empire and it's particularly by the Goths who attacked the Western Roman Empire in 408 AD under a king named Alaric. And so the Goths invaded what's current day, France and Spain and Italy from the north 
in 408 AD and began to cause great destruction on the Roman Empire. It was the beginning of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And they're going to see this as a symbol of that happening. Futurists, and you're going to watch this interesting track. Now, futurists are going to split just a little bit. They're going to say this is a forecast of something that's going to happen in the future, but they have a little trouble deciding, is it literally going to be a supernatural event? Will there literally be fire coming down and burning up a third of the earth? Or is this a little bit symbolic for the effects of a nuclear exchange? You remember in our last lesson I told you that some futurists think there's going to be a nuclear war, that Russia and their Arab allies are going to fire nuclear weapons, and there's going to be in the Middle East a nuclear exchange. If that's the case, then this represents a widening of that nuclear conflict, and so the fire really is talking about the earth being literally burned up by nuclear weapons. So futurists say this is going to happen in the tribulation, but will it be a nuclear war or will there literally be supernatural things happening to the earth? Both of those views, different futurists hold those views. And then, of course, the spiritual is going to understand this as God's judgment on the land. Here's another symbol. Just in general, in apocalyptic literature, but in Revelation, the land symbolizes uh, political, uh, or excuse me, spiritual things. You're going to see this when we get into the Antichrist. But the land represents spiritual things. And so a, a symbolic view would say this is God's judgment on spiritual unfaithfulness in the world. But whether you're a futurist and trying to understand if it's literal or a nuclear or a historicist saying it's something in the past, that's kind of what's happening uh, in this thing. The second trumpet which hits the waters and turns it to blood, the historicists say that's another invasion of the Roman Empire. And this time it's in 468 and it's by the Vandals and that they attacked Rome's navy. And that's true. They came in from the Baltics and they brought a navy in and they really defeated Rome's navy in about 468. And so they'll understand this as that historic event. Futurists understand this as either an asteroid hitting the earth Again, an, an, a, a supernatural or a natural event that hits the earth and ends up killing a third of the creatures in the sea, or it's yet another nuclear bomb. It's just a significant nuclear exchange, kind of like ICBMs coming up from the atmosphere. So futurists are going to understand this as literally destroying the earth, either supernaturally or naturally. So that's kind of how they're going to see these, understand these events. So either you have the tribulation and you, you're in the midst of a war, or people are in the midst of things they do not understand. The rapture has happened, if you're a futurist, at the beginning of this seven-year period, and people realize something supernatural is going on, and some futurists say, you can take these visions pretty literally, that these things are actually happening in a supernatural way. Does that make sense? The next two trumpets, the third angel sounded his trumpet, and you... Uh, are going to see a, a star, and I want to tell you about the star. Stars, as a symbol, are going to be one of two things normally. A star is either going to be some kind of heavenly being like an angel. If you remember when the book opens, Jesus is walking and he's hold the seven stars, and he said, these are the angels of the seven churches. Stars are oftentimes angels, sometimes good, sometimes bad angels. Stars are also sometimes kings, presidents, rulers, powerful political entities. 
And so it's not always sure, but most of the time a star is going to represent one of those two things. And you'll see that our different views are going to understand that star in a little bit different way. But it says, the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star on fire fell from the sky, and a third of the rivers and the springs of water. Uh, and the name of that star is Wormwood, and Wormwood just means bitter. It shows up in the Old Testament. Basically, it's, it's a bitterness. And a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from these poisoned waters that had become bitter. Fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck. Now, again, this is all happening to earthly type things with either supernatural or man-made calamities happening. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was, out with, was without light, and also a third of the night. So you see the waters being struck and people dying because they, they cannot drink the water, and you begin to see darkness uh, in one form or another. The historicists understand this is yet another progression of attacks on the Roman Empire. Attila the Hun had an army of about 800,000 people, and he came rolling over uh, from the north from what's modern day, through what's modern-day Germany and over the Italian Alps, and he came in to invade Italy. And it's said by historians, not necessarily reliably so, but as many as 300,000 people died in these wars, in these battles. And that there are so many people that were dead that it fouled the waters and they became, I mean, this is an interesting historical account, that people were dying because the water, you couldn't drink the water because there were just so many dead in these wars. I mean, this massive army comes pouring in to Italy. And so a historicist is going to understand that third trumpet as the invasion of Attila the Hun. Futurists, again, are going to either understand the waters, either this star is literally a meteor hitting the earth and somehow fouling the water, so a very literal supernatural, or it's radiation from the nuclear war. This is, by the way, that whole war theme that runs through the tribulation is very popular, and you can understand it because once you begin a nuclear conflagration, a lot of things like this it's just going to go downhill really fast, right? You're going to tend to see the whole earth begin to be collateral damage from nuclear war. And that's how a lot of futurists see this. Some, by the way, see this star as an individual, and they see this as the first introduction of the Antichrist. And we're going to talk about the Antichrist because that individual is going to appear a little bit later in Revelation. But some futurists see this as the Antichrist. Most, however, see it either as just the effects of the nuclear war or a meteor coming out of the sky. The uh, fourth trumpet, which kind of makes everything dark, the historicists see that as the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD. Yet more people come in and they turn the lights out, if you will, on the Roman Empire. So historicists are just seeing all these calamities are happening to the Roman Empire and, and the stability of society. Futurists are just going to see this either as a supernatural eclipse, right? They're on that track of God's doing this, and there's a supernatural eclipse, or this is, again, the nuclear winter. So the nuclear war is going to change the atmosphere, and the thought, you know, predictions are if we have a big nuclear war, it is going to darken the earth and vegetation's going to die and uh, it's going to be very hard to live. And that's how they understand it, is during that seven-year period, things are getting bad really fast because of the wars. So futurists are seeing this happen in that seven-year period, either man-made or not. 
Symbolic understands this star as a nation falling. It's just seeing instability. In other words, political instability throughout history, and you see that all the time. So I guess to sum up these four, what you're seeing in the different views is they all understand cataclysmic events are happening. They all understand that these are things that God is bringing about as judgment, but they're going to disagree as to when they happened and exactly what form they'll take. Apocalyptic literature is not specific enough, and it's not intended to be specific enough to tell you exactly what it's going to happen and exactly when. But the different views of Revelation try to interpret it. If you're a futurist, you're simply, you can understand why futurists are looking at world events very closely because they're expecting a nuclear war. They think it's going to start with Israel. Good bet, by the way. And they think that Israel's neighbors are going to attack. Another good bet, by the way. But they would see that happening. So as you see world events looking like war is more likely or nuclear war is even more likely, is this sounding familiar? Yeah, pick up a newspaper and it's starting to read a little like Revelation, isn't it? Futurists look at that and that's how they say we must be on the verge of these events happening because they look like what's happening here. Make sense? Okay. Those are our first four. You have a question and we'll move on to the other two. Okay. Um, can you tell us what the significance is of a third? A third of the earth, a third. Right. You'll notice in the seals it was a fourth. Now it's a third. Some futurists want to take this very literally. In fact, futurists like to take as much of this very literally as they can. I mean, nuclear war is clearly a symbolic understanding of this, but want to take it as literally as they can. So some futurists would say there's literally a third of the world engulfed in this nuclear war. Does that make sense? I mean, it's affecting a lot, but fundamentally it starts in the Middle East, maybe it spreads, but it's not total, the whole world is involved in this at this point. So it's a partial war. Other views are simply going to say a third just means not everything. In other words, God's not done yet. He's not judged the whole earth. Because near the end, you're going to see the whole place turn to toast, right? But right now, it's a third. So basically, it's understood as maybe not anything significant literally that it's a third, but the fact is it's not everything. And so there's, these are partial judgments. Good question. Um, you mentioned a book in the Apocrypha. Yes. Is the Apocrypha something you recommend people read? Uh, is the, I, I would recommend that, A, read your Bible first, because there's no sense reading books that aren't inspired until you read the ones that are, right? So do not read the Apocrypha instead of your Bible. But once you've memorized your entire New Testament, then I'm fine with you reading the Apocrypha. Seriously, the Apocrypha is interesting. Mainly, uh, the reason I read the Apocrypha and another group called the Pseudepigrapha, that's what Enoch's part of. These are not inspired books, but they're useful for two reasons. Number one, history. They give you a version of history. For example, some of the Apocrypha are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. You may have heard of the book of Maccabees. That's, those are historical books about things that really happened about 160 years before the time of Christ. And so it's very interesting insight into the oppression of the Jews in that time period and something that happened. The book of Tobit and some of the other wisdom books are useful to give you an idea of how Jews thought at the time. It doesn't say it's true or this is what God did, but it does give you an idea of how they thought. And that's how I'm using it. I just want you to know that when you see these seven angels, this was an idea that they had. They didn't necessarily know. They didn't know their names, but they sort of fantasized about it. 
And so there were books written that said, hey, there's seven archangels, and I think these are their names. And so it gives you an insight into how they were thinking. So if you'll read them from that point of view, they're useful as historical documents. Good question. Um, okay, a question about the third trumpet. Could it possibly be Chernobyl? Does Chernobyl not mean literally wormwood? Yes, this is, uh, I'm glad that you asked that question. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of this kind of story come out. And I, I call them, I don't mean this to be, uh, I call them conspiracy theory stories, and I don't mean that in a bad way. What I mean is, is you take a little, this might be true, and a little bit of, oh, I heard this, and okay, this is true. Whoa, look at all this comes together. What an awesome thing. You're going to see this a lot with the book of Revelation. And here's the problem with that. About half the things you read on the internet or see on the History Channel, it's not exactly factual. And the other half, not necessarily connected. So could that be Chernobyl? If you're a futurist, you might want to understand that event is Chernobyl. Can you prove it? Of course not. Is it a coincidence that maybe it means in some language, wormwood or bitter? Maybe, maybe not. In other words, you're going to hear a lot of that kind of thing. The problem with it is you cannot be certain of that at all. And so try not to get too wrapped around those things. As, as titillating as they are and as like suggestive as they are, try not to, to just take those two internalized. Some futurists might understand that nuclear accident as, as being an example of something that happened there. Not all futurists understand it that way. But that's a great question because you're going to hear a lot of stories like that. Wait till we get to the Antichrist. When we get to the Antichrist, I'll give you some theories of who's the Antichrist and why. And you'll still see some really interesting stories. I'll try to pull a couple of them off the internet that takes one and one and one and adds them up and gets 43. I mean, it's, it's really interesting how you can get some, some interesting ideas there. So I'd be a little skeptical of those, but Chernobyl is an incident that some futurists have said maybe that's the third trumpet. Good question. Along that same line, there's been a lot of discussion lately about blood moons. Is that a futurist idea, and does that play into the trumpets? Uh, good question. I'll just give you a brief answer there, because that may not be something that's of interest to everybody. No, not really. Uh, I mean, it's yes, that's a good question, and that's a good connection, but it's actually a little different. Some futurists do think, and they're going to want to cast that into this. It, I find that a little bit hard to connect there, but you, you'll probably read something about that. Yes, that's a good question. Okay. Well, let's see what happens with the other two. Let me give you a little background first, though. I want to show you a picture of the Roman Empire. So the Western Roman Empire is, uh, you'll see it up here in the brown on the left, and then you'll see the Eastern Roman Empire. It used to all be one. I mean, this is a massive empire, right? Time of Christ, this is the Roman Empire. Well, it gets split into an Eastern and Western half, basically, and that's kind of a long story, but fundamentally the Western half is ruled by Rome, the eastern part of the Roman Empire is ruled from Constantinople, and that's Istanbul, Turkey. And it used to just all be Rome. But as Rome begins to get pressed by these uh, invaders, and the historicist is about to say that the Western Roman Empire and the fourth trumpet just fell. So all that part on the left goes to anarchy. In other words, you just, it's invaded, the Roman government is really not functioning anymore, and it sort of dissolves into chaos. Eastern Roman Empire keeps its government and stays an, an empire, if you will, for a lot longer. And so 
during these next two trumpets, historicists are going to say the first four trumpets told you the fall of the Western Roman Empire in history. The next two are going to tell you the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire is going to fall basically to Muslims because in about 612 AD, Muhammad's followers, Muhammad and his followers become very expansionist. And so they begun to go take the Islamic faith with their swords through and just come bursting out of the Arabian Peninsula and began to put great pressure on the Eastern Roman Empire. And there are various groups of Muslims from about 612 to about 768 where there's huge attacks and huge pressure here. And so historicists are going to understand these next two trumpets as the fall of that eastern half. And so by 1453, the Roman Empire is no more because the eastern had fallen. So 476, the western falls. By 1453, the eastern falls. And that's how they're going to understand these next two trumpets. So futurists, of course, are going to see that as, as future events, not past events. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. These are different. The first ones, you begin to see some pretty wild things happening and striking the earth. Now you're going to see demonic things happening. It's not so much natural events. And so they see the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. So what is the star likely to be? Whatever it is, it's a person. It's, an it's some kind of an entity because it's given a key and it's going to unlock the shaft of the abyss. Right? So this star, this individual, was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, and when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. This is your first clue that we're in the vicinity of hell. I mean, this is not heaven, right? You've got smoke coming up out of the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and they were given power like that of scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Remember when God stopped everything during the seals before th bad things start happening and said, you go put my mark on all the believers, the people that, that follow Christ. Now, these entities, whatever they are, are not allowed to harm God's people. So they were told not to harm the people who had the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And during those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it, but they will long to die. Let's talk about the different views and how they see this. Historicists, these are Muslims attacking the Christian Empire, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. In other words, this is attacking the West. They will understand that star as being Muhammad. And so Muhammad is this star who has the power to unleash the abyss. And so you see these Muslim fighters come swarming out of Arabia. Do you understand how they're going to understand this symbolism? They're going to see Muhammad unleashing these hordes like locusts, if you will. In other words, these armies that are coming out and attacking the Eastern Roman Empire from about 612 to about 763 AD. Now, futurists, switching to the future, are going to say, we've had a nuclear war, and now, again, they're going to divide between supernatural and more natural events. The futurists are going to say, either this is truly demons. These are demons being loosed on the Earth. Just like the asteroids hitting it, 
These are eclipses of the sun and the moon, and now literally that demons are being unleashed, and they're going to understand the star as Satan. This is Satan being given the key to the abyss to unleash his angels, and the description given of them is that they look like locusts, and they have a sting in their tail, and they're allowed to torment people. So this is demonic activity in the world. Or, during the seven-year tribulation, or some futures say, no, it's not supernatural. It's more of, it's basically armies that come pouring out of the earth. And this description, by the way, some futurists are going to listen to this description of these locusts. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, they had what looked like a crown. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. In other words, John's having a hard time describing what he's seeing. And their teeth were kind of like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of chariots and horses rushing into battle. It's really loud. All right, this is what's happening. They have tails and they have stings like scorpion uh, missiles, right? And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And so the futurists are going to say either this, what's happening here is a description of demons or this is a guy in the first century seeing an attack helicopter. I mean, this is a vision, and he's like, okay, help me out here. It's kind of like a locust. It's firing this stuff. You see what I'm saying? So futurists are going to say this is either supernatural or this is, again, that war. There's huge war, physical war going on in this time period. Uh, the uh, symbolic view is going to say this is satanic activity on, uh, on the earth. Now, those who would understand this as the futurists understand it as war will see all these pictures of war machines that he is seeing. Those who see it as supernatural are going to understand Satan coming down, and they're going to point to some interesting passages of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 14, this is written 700 years before the time of Christ, there's a passage, Isaiah 14, that's generally thought of as Satan, and they're going to see a connection here. Listen to this. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, the sun of the dawn, which, by the way, in Latin, that's where the word Lucifer comes from. And so the name of Satan is Lucifer is because that phrase, basically, in Latin is Lucifer. You have been cast down to the earth. Doesn't that sound like Revelation? I saw the star coming down. Cast down to the earth, you who once were powerful, laid low the nations. You said in your heart, now here's an insight into what Satan was doing. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you have been brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Interesting, isn't it? That you get this prophecy from 700 years before the time of Christ, and now here's Revelation talking about a star coming down, being given the key to the abyss. So some futurists will see this as armies and war, continue that war theme. Others are going to say, no, this is really supernatural stuff. Satan has been cast out of heaven. He's been cast down as it was forecast and literally been given the keys to the pit to the abyss, and out of that he pulls out these rebellious angels. There's also talk in 2 Peter 4 and Jude 6 and 7, this is in the New Testament, and there's these little cryptic references to angels who rebelled and were imprisoned 
And so here you would see people, the futurist understanding, this is Satan being allowed by God, being cast out of heaven and allowed by God to loose his demons on the earth because it serves God's purpose. And they're going to go torment the unbelievers. Does that make sense? You can see how there's a coherence. My point is not to convince you of one of these views, but they all attempt to understand this in a very reasonable way. They all see it as God's judgment on the earth, just see it happening in a different way. One other thing, uh, Luke 10, 18, Jesus says another cryptic thing. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As a matter of fact, in our next lesson, you're going to see some war going on in heaven, and you're going to see this event happen. And so Satan, they would understand Satan being cast out, and this is demonic activity. Interesting thing, by the way, I just want, kind of want to point this out as a side note. This fifth trumpet, and the demons come out, and they're allowed to torment the non-believers. If you understand it from a futurist point of view, I just want to talk to you futurists now who see this as a supernatural thing that's happening in the seven years. It says something interesting about demon possession. Number one, they cannot, demons cannot harm the people of God. Right? They're only allowed to torment the others. The second is that the demon possession, these people want to die, and they can't. And so futurists think that this passage is teaching us about demon possession, that demons cannot possess God's people. You are sealed with his seal, but they are active and tormenting people who do not believe in God. So kind of an interesting take on that locust and the, the demons. And then... We'll finish the sixth trumpet. Six angel sounded his trumpet. I heard a voice coming from the horns of the altar that's in front of God. And he said, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who'd been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of their troops was 200 million. Now again, you're going to see a continuation. The historicists are going to say that fifth trumpet was Muhammad and all of the Muslims attacking. Fast forward a little bit. Now you have the Turkish Muslims in 1453, and the Ottoman Empire is finally conquered Constantinople and the Eastern Roman Empire. They had a huge army, not 200 million, but they had a huge army, and they finally conquered and destroyed it. And the third of mankind means this empire was kind of the third of the known world. I mean, it's just a big empire. So historicists are going to say this is just the story of conquest of the Roman Empire. And it's just being uh, rolled out in front of us. Futurists are going to understand this as either demons, again, supernaturally, or a huge invasion army. The fact that there are four angels leads some futurists to say there are going to be four armies that combine against Israel, of course. The fact that they're coming from the Euphrates means they're coming from Iran and Iraq. They're coming from the east. And so they will see various alliances, but Russia, China, Iran, Iraq, you see these nations coming together. In fact, Hal Lindsey sometime back kind of pointed out that it was reported that many, many decades ago, China's army had reached, their militia and their army had reached 200 million. So from his point of view as a futurist, he saw this in a really literal way. This is literally going to be a 200 million person army, maybe an alliance of armies marching against Israel. And they're literally going to march in from the east and attack Israel. And so you see the futurist understanding this as just big war, nuclear war, huge armies, uh, all kinds of uh, fallout and bad things happening in the world, 
Or some futurists are going to say, no, it's probably really demonic activity, but something happening in that seven-year tribulation. Okay? The, uh, one of the really interesting things about this, though, is kind of at the end of this period, you see this interesting passage. So now we've had the six trumpets. We've seen all these things happen, some natural things, demonic things, either the fall of the Roman Empire or bad things are happening in the future. But it said the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, by these happenings, still did not repent. They still don't turn to God. And you think, how can that happen? They did not stop worshiping demons and idols, silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, magic arts, sexual immorality, or their thefts. So it's an interesting judgment on humanity. And again, this is where we pick up again that Exodus story. Think about what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Ten plagues come on him. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he's kind of like, wow, God's really powerful, and he's kind of really judging the gods of Egypt. He's making it clear that he's God and they're not. But he won't believe. He won't agree, will he? He hardens his heart. Symbolic understanding says this is the story of humanity. No matter what happens, whether it's a tornado or it's an earthquake or it's personal tragedy, this is God trying to say, look, this is judgment on sin. Will you turn and come to me? And this is kind of that prediction that Jesus said. He said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way, and very few find it. In other words, God says, turn back to me, but not that many people will. It's kind of a retelling of the Exodus story. Again, the Exodus story is the story of humanity. God's faithful to rescue his people, and many, many people are like Pharaoh. They harden their hearts. So here's you see kind of a closure on that judgment, whether you see it as events in the tribulation or a, just kind of a commentary on humanity. Those are the judgments of the six trumpets. Okay? Questions? Okay. Would verse, wouldn't verse 4 indicate that believers are still here on earth, not having been raptured during the tribulation? If believers are not still here, they wouldn't have had to be told that they could only attack those with out the seal on right. their forehead. Good question. Are there believers? Okay, now we're going to go to the futurist. Because historicists, they don't have any issue with this whole rapture thing. They're like, this is all about what happened in history. I don't know what you're talking about, about the rapture. Futurists are like, yeah, no, there's a tribulation, and there's going to be a rapture as a separate event from the second coming. Right? Nobody disagrees that Jesus is going to come, but futurists, some futurists think the rapture and the second coming are two different events. Pre-tribulation rapture, meaning you're going to get raptured in chapter 4 before all this stuff happens. You're right. You and I are gone. But there are believed people who do believe during the tribulation. So they will understand these believers as people who do believe. Certain futurists, called dispensationalists, say these are Jewish converts during the seven-year tribulation. So the believers in the tribulation, if you think the rapture's already happened, are people who came to Christ. And most of those people think they're Jewish. Now, not all futurists think the rapture happens before the tribulation. I'm going to show you later when some people think it happens after the tribulation, okay, before the thousand-year reign. And I'll tell you when that happens in the scripture where they believe it. So not all futurists think the rapture's already happened. But even if you do, that's who the believers are. Great question. Wouldn't the rapture be such a dramatic worldwide event that it would have a major geopolitical impact? 
Well, that's an interesting question. Let's suppose for a moment that all the followers of Christ really do get raptured all of a sudden, right? Like tomorrow is when the tribulation starts. And so tonight, boom, all the Christians are gone. All the followers of Christ. That, by the way, that means a judgment has happened. Fair enough? I mean, this is one of the problems with this view, is you can't rapture people out and go, and then later in chapter 20, when we have the big judgment, go, oh, I made a mistake. I got you by mistake. I raptured you, but you're really a pagan. I'm sorry. You're going to hell. Now, there's a judgment that's happened there, right? You're only going to rapture the people that are going to go on to heaven. So a judgment has happened there. Here's the interesting thing. Would the rapture, if you believe in a rapture before the tribulation, would that be a cataclysmic event? If you, if you look at the movies and the books, fiction, that have been written, yes. I worry that maybe not. I mean, stop and think about it. How many real followers of Christ are there in the world? I'm not talking about how many people say they believe in God. How many followers of Christ are there really in the world? I don't know if that would be cataclysmic or not. I guess it depends on how many believers in Christ there really were, and that's assuming you do believe in the rapture happening before the tribulation. So it's a conjectural question, but it's an interesting one. How narrow is the gate? How narrow is the gate? That's exactly right. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 7. So I don't know. It's obviously a good question, but it's conjecture. Do you have to be one of these groups identifying with Revelation? You do not have to pick. I don't think when you meet St. Peter at the pearly gates, he's going to go, which one were you? <laughs> I'm sorry you were wrong. You know, good job. Uh, which one do you want? Door number two? Sorry. That's not the right one. Yeah, I'm being facetious. But no, you don't have to pick. The reason I'm doing this as we go through Revelation is Christians have always tried to understand what is God telling God's telling you something important in this book in these visions. What is he telling us? Well, there's some things that no matter what your view is, you agree. God is sovereign. God is judging the world, not Satan. That there is satanic activity. That there are really bad things that happen. That persecution happens. In other words, the book of Revelation, no matter what your view, helps you to understand as a Christian what's really going on in the world. But Christians have struggled to say, well, when will these things happen? And they've disagreed about it. Uh, and sincerely, all the views I'm telling you are all Christian views. They all believe this is inspired and God did it. They're just wrestling with the question of, okay, now when did that happen? And so you do not have to agree with those. In fact, I'm really comfortable if you say, no matter how you read this, there's some really powerful things that are true here that everybody agrees with. But I thought you might find it interesting to see how Christians throughout history have understood it. It does make a little difference. For example, if you're a futurist and you don't think any of this stuff has happened yet, this wasn't very useful to Christians in the past 2,000 years. If you understand this in a symbolic way and you think this has happened over and over and over in history and it's just trying to tell you how to deal with it, well, this has been quite useful to Christians in the past 2,000 years. Does that make sense? So it makes a little difference, but the key is understanding what are the key ideas that God's trying to tell us. Good question. Well, let me finish up with chapter 10 because just like with the seals, you had six judgments that happen and then the seventh seal doesn't open. And you have the same thing here. There's a little interlude. Here, six trumpets. 
So now stop and think what's happening on the earth. You futurists, what's happening on the earth is either massive nuclear war and Israel is deep in the middle of it and we are dragged into it. We're going to get really dragged into it next lesson, by the way, as the United States. So prepare yourself. Taxes are probably going up. And so you've got this big war or you've got some serious supernatural stuff happening on the earth and things are really, really getting bad. And so now there's a pause. And chapter 10 is that pause. And in chapter 10, John sees a different vision. And this ties into an Old Testament vision. He said, then I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. After the trumpets and all this is going on in the earth, he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His legs were like fiery pillars. He's holding a little scroll open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea, political dominance. Left foot on the land, spiritual dominance. This is a declaration of God's power over everything. Political, spiritual, whatever it is. It's kind of a forecast of the two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet, whom you will meet soon. It says, he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And so this is God pausing and saying, do you understand that I am God and the gods of your culture are not? This is the Exodus story again. Finally, it's like he said to Pharaoh, what am I going to have to do for you to understand that I'm God and the gods of Egypt are not? This is what God's doing here. He says, have you had enough? Are you ready to, to repent? Are you ready to acknowledge me? And so it goes on and he says, then the voice from heaven, he said, I want you to take that scroll out of his hand and I want you to eat that scroll. He says, it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. He said, sure enough, I took the little scroll and I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And he said, you must prophesy again about many things, peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You must prophesy about some things that are going to happen in reality, in, in the created order. This is interesting because it ties back to something that Ezekiel is told. Now, this is Old Testament. Same thing. He said, I look, and I saw a hand stretched out, and there was a scroll unrolled before me. And he said to me, son of man, Ezekiel, eat what's before you. Eat this scroll. And then he said to me, I'm giving you and to fill your stomach with this. And the Spirit lifted me up, and I went in bitterness in the anger of the Spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. So historically, kind of how do we interpret this little vision? It says that, Whatever God gives us to internalize. By the way, most views understand this as God's word. Some would say it's that scroll originally, the scroll of judgment, and that's why it sours your stomach. Others would say, no, this might be God's word. If you're a historicist, the Roman Empire just fell in 1453. What happened shortly after that? Printing press. Everybody gets to read the Bible now, right? They say, this is it. Everybody can now ingest the words of God. And when you do, it's sweet. Those are the words of salvation. But for some, it's very, very sour because they're also the words of judgment. So they would understand this scroll in that way. Others would say that God's charge to us is bittersweet. It's sweet because we take to the world the message of salvation, and it's bitter because many of them will not listen, and the bitterness of judgment will fall on them. So however you see it, this is God pausing, and he's saying, look, let me tell you what's happening here. This is me judging the world. I'm in control, and I'm trying to convince people to turn to me. Do you understand that your gods are not really gods? Your money, your wealth, your fame, your power, your sex, your whatever it is, it's not. They are not gods. Can your TV, can your power, can your scientists, can they stop tornadoes? Can they stop these things happening? Can you stop war? No. He says, 
I'm God, they're not. And this is what this is saying. So is that this is God judging the earth and saying, well, do you realize I'm God? It's the Exodus story again. God judging the gods of this world, the little gods, the gods of our culture. And he says, it's bittersweet. Jesus Christ died on a cross and it can be sweet for you if you accept that. And the judgment of God is bitter if you do not. Does that make sense? So he kind of pauses here and he sort of sums up what's going on in Revelation. Now, if you're symbolic, you say that's going on every day out there in the world. If you're a futurist, you say, yes, that's true, but this is talking about something specific in the future. So we might disagree on when, but everybody disagrees that the judgment of God is sweet for those who believe and very bitter for those who harden their hearts and do not. Okay? That's the message of this piece in 8 through 10, and that's what's happening. So we've had seals, trumpets, the judgment of God. Next week, things get really interesting because Satan shows up in person, and there's a war in heaven. And I'll tell you who wins next time. Thanks, guys.